Woody Guthrie, American radical, was born in a place called Okemo, Oklahoma. Quite appropriately for an American radical, he was born on Bastille Day, July 14th, 1912. And Okima, he said, was one of the singingest, square dancingest, drinkingest, yellingest, preachingest, walkingest, talkingest, laughingest, cryingest, shootingest, bleedingest, gamblingest, fist fightingest, gun club and razor carryingest of our ranch and farm towns because it blossomed into one of our first oil boom towns, right? They discovered oil in Okima in 1920 when Woody was eight years old, and he saw the place just, just transformed from a little southern hamlet to a major oil supply center. And it was a boom town for about eight years, till 1928, when the oil ran out and Okima went from boom to bust. And very quickly, it was as dead as it was once alive, and hundreds upon thousands of oil boomers from this region were turned out to roam the countryside. And in that respect, Okima and her children became a microcosm, a prediction of the fate of many more towns and communities across the Southern Plains when the Depression finally kicked in. 1929, year of the Wall Street crash, after a series of some incredible family tragedies, the burning down of their, of their first home, the burning to death of his older sister in a second house fire, the near fatal burning of his father in a third house fire, and of course the incarceration of his mother in the Oklahoma uh, State Mental Asylum. She wasn't crazy, she had the misunderstood and undiagnosed Huntington's disease. After these family tragedies, Woody went to join his recuperating father in another boom-to-bust oil town on the Texas Panhandle, a place called Pampa, Texas. He uh, dropped out of high school after two years, became a sign painter, married, had his first two children, and they all waded then through the years that carried the black blizzards of dust out and across the Great Plains. This was the worn-out topsoil of 100,000 square miles of destroyed farmland. The dust continued to blow for the rest of the decade. But the worst single day that any of the dust bowlers could remember was Palm Sunday, April 14, 1935, when winds of more than 80 miles an hour whipped the top soil in the red clay from as far away as Nebraska and dumped it on the already dying town of Pampa, Texas, another boom-to-bust oil town, as I said. Sky turned black and red with thousands of tons of roiling dust. Animals and people choked to death. Toddlers wandered out into dust drifts and suffocated. And of course, uh, fundamentalists, uh, uh, Baptists, Pont uh, Pentecostalists, they believed that this was literally the end of the world. This was God's judgment being visited upon a wicked people. And Woody remembered that when the dust cloud hit Pampa, he said, it looked like an ocean was chomping down on a snail. It looked like the Red Sea was closing in on the Israel children. We thought we was done for. Thousands of us just packed up and lit out. And that year, he wrote the first of many songs about the death of his community and hundreds of others like it across the Southern Plains. <laughs> Well, I've sung this song and I'll sing it again About the place that I lived on the West Texas Plains In the city of Pampa, County called Gray Here's what all of the people there'd say They'd say so long well, it's been good to know you So long, been good to know you so long been good to know you this dusty old dust storm is getting my home and i gotta be drifted along 
Well, that dust storm it hit, and it hit like thunder. It dusted us over and dusted us under. Blocked out the traffic, blocked out the sun. Straight for home, all the people did run. Singing so long, it's been good to know you. So long, been good to know you. So long, been good to know you. This dusty old dust storm is getting my home. And I gotta be drifted along. Now the sweethearts, they sat in the dark and they sparked. They kissed and they hugged in that dusty old dark. They sighed and they cried, hugged and they kissed. But instead of marriage, they was talking like this. Well, so long. Been good to know you so long. It's been good to know you so long. Been good to know you. This dusty old dust storm's getting my home. And I gotta be drifting along. Now the telephone rang and it jumped off the wall. That was the preacher making his call and he said, Kind friends, this may be the end. You've got your last chance at salvation from sin. Well, the churches was jammed, churches was packed. That dusty old dust storm, it blew so black that the preacher could not read a word of his text. So he folded his specs, took up a collection singing so long. Well, it's been good to know you so long. It's been good to know you. So long, been good to know you. This dusty old dust storm is getting my home. And I gotta be drifting along. Well, now that was the dustiest dust storm that ever blowed. Most everybody they took to the road. And they lit down that highway fast as could go. And they all sang these words as they blowed. So long, it's been good to know you. So long, been good to know you. So long, been good to know you. This dusty old dust storm is getting my home. And I gotta be drifting along. See them all going off down the highway as I fade out. So long. Well, thank you. Woody left his wife and his children, neither for the first or the last time, and he hit the road westward early in the, um, the summer of 1937, about 24 years old. And somewhere out there on those choked highways leading westwards among the jalopies and the wagons piled high with furniture, there was another Oklahoma native named Agnes Cunningham. They called her Sis, Sis Cunningham. Years later, she would sing in a radical folk group with Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger and a bunch of other people, uh, the Almanac Singers. That's Sis up there playing the accordion. And like Woody and countless other children of the Dust Bowl, she would become radically politicized by her migratory experience. As she recalled it, Along with other hundreds of thousands of dirt farmers, we fought to survive. We battled crop failure, hunger, illness without doctors, gully washes, hailstorms, the death of livestock, fires. Now, we could have endured all of those normal disasters, but there was no way in God's world to escape the shark's teeth of the bankers. And that's where he ended up. 
Well, Woody remembered that the further west you walk, the browner, hotter, stiller, and emptier the country gets. I met the hard rock miners, old prospectors, desert rats, and whole swarms of hitchhikers and migratory workers squatted with their little piles of belongings in the shade of the big signboards out across the flat, hard crust, gravelly desert. Kids chasing around in the blistering sun, ladies cooking scrappy meals and sooty buckets and then scouring the plates clean with sand. Young folks in work pants, cocky and whipcords, slacks, cotton dresses, they'd gather around us and they'd sing too. But sometimes they'd just stand real quiet and listen. And I knew what they was thinking about. Well, by 1936, the year of Franklin Roosevelt's first re-election, the Midwestern American family farm had pretty well blown away with the topsoil. That's the way Joe Klein describes it in Woody's biography. He says, a human convulsion of epic proportions was in progress. The whole countryside seemed to heave and groan as the farms emptied and the highways filled. And on the country music stations, old Jimmy Rogers was up there yodeling and singing that the California waters taste just like cherry wine. And Woody and half a million other migrants from the Dust Bowl crawled their way westward towards those legendary vineyards and orchards of California. Uh, and they were all chasing a dream through innumerable hardships, chasing a dream. And this dream was something that Woody called one of the stinkingest things that I've ever run onto. And it was spawned by the, the uh, unscrupulous practices of labor contractors out in, the, in California who were aware of the Dust Bowl crisis and were exploiting it by filling the Dust Bowl region, region flooding them with handbills like these, promising work for hundreds of thousands of hands, work for everybody who needs it, picking the peaches and the grapes and the select prunes and what have you. Now, they didn't need hundreds of thousands of hands. They needed a couple thousand at very short periods of time. You can work out the implications for wages if you can engineer a crisis where you have uh, got hundreds of thousands of people chasing a couple thousand jobs. You don't care because you're going to get five bucks from everybody to whom you give an address of someone who might give you work when you get out to California. That's how they made their money. Right? So following that dream, for whatever reason, arriving at the California, the migrants were stopped cold because the Los Angeles Police Department panicked. They set up these highly illegal, highly unconstitutional roadblocks on the major points of entry into the state of California. They called it the bum blockade. What they were doing was turning back anybody who looked like an unemployable. That's the word they used. Now, uh, before this trip uh, on this tour, I'd never been to California before, but like, I'll share a little secret with you. I'd seen it on a map. And even I knew that, that Los Angeles was about as far west as you could get. What was the LAPD doing setting up an illegal roadblock 300 miles to the east, stopping other Americans from coming into the state of California as though it were a foreign country? I mean, where does their jurisdiction end anyway? Brooklyn, you know? <laughs> Uh, and and um, so even though it was illegal, they didn't care, and they were applauded by the Los, uh, Los Angeles Times, uh, William Randolph Hearst, this whole Chambers of Commerce, a whole anti-migrant block. Now, you're being stopped for being an unemployable. How could you prove that you weren't an unemployable? You would reach into your pocket and you'd pull out 50 bucks. If you could show the border guard 50 bucks worth of the old do-re-mi, as Woody called it, and then you might be able to slip 
past the bum blockade into the golden state of California where you would be sure to get a less than warm welcome anyway. So Woody took a look at the situation and he sent sort of a, a musical postcard to the folks back home who were thinking of pulling up stakes and coming out to California. Maybe they'd better think again. Now lots of folks back east, they say they're leaving home most every day. They're beating that hard old dusty way due to California line. Across the desert sands they roll, getting out of that old dust bowl. They think they're coming to a sugar bowl, but here's what they'll find. Cause the police at the port of entry say, now you're number 14,000 for today. And if you ain't got that do re me, well I tell you, if you ain't got that do re me, then you'd better go back to beautiful Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Georgia, Tennessee, California's a garden of Eden. It's a paradise to live in or see. But believe it or not, you won't find it so hot if you ain't got that do-re-mi. Now if you wanna buy you a home, a farm that can't do nobody no harm, take your vacation by the mountains or the sea. But you better not swap your cow for car. You better stay right where you are. You better take this little tip from me. Cause I look through the want ads every day. And the headlines in the papers always say. Hey now, if you ain't got that do re me. If you ain't got that old do re me. Well then, you'd better go back to beautiful Texas. Oklahoma, Kansas, Georgia, Tennessee. California's a garden of Eden. And it's a paradise to live in or see. But believe it or not, you won't find it so hot if you ain't got that do re Thank you. Well, Woody made it into the state of California, and it was there that he encountered for the first time the word oaky. Oaky. And this was a slur, an insult that was used to describe all of the migrants from the Southern Plains, whether in fact they were from Oklahoma or not. Formula went like this. If you were poor, white, homeless, unemployed, and in California at that time, you were an oaky, no matter where you came from. Funnily enough, if you were poor, black, homeless, unemployed, in California at that time, and from Oklahoma, you weren't an Okie, right? <laughs> Okies were a particular white underclass, and they were the target of a really hysterical, highly orchestrated campaign of statewide xenophobia. It's an atmosphere in which if you went to a movie theater in, I don't know, Bakersfield or somewhere in the San Joaquin Valley, there'd be a sign posted out front saying, Negroes and Okies upstairs or you go to a, a diner, no Negroes, dogs, or Okies served, that kind of thing. So it's in that atmosphere that Woody began circulating around the, uh, the, uh, the Dust Bowl migrant camps around 1938, places looking like that. 
And that's when he began to listen to the old radicals about what the big picture was. This is sort of the beginning of his political education. And again, the way that Joe Klein describes it, he says, these old hobos around the campfire would mutter half coherently about the capitalists, the rich bastards, and then they'd reach into their pocket and they'd pull out a battered old red card that had proved they had been members of the wildest, wooliest, most violent, joyous, and completely disorganized gang of reds ever to strike fear into the hearts of the American bourgeoisie, the industrial workers of the world, the IWW, the Glad to hear that they're, they're still in the, in, the, in the collective consciousness. Um, that's, I don't know why he uses the past tense. It's my membership card. Uh, you can pay by direct debit, you know. <laughs> A lot of people think that the WABs were wiped out in the Great Red Scare of 1919, 1920. We weren't wiped out. We just went underground to wait for the invention of the Internet. <laughs> so it's IWW.org if you want to join the, the, the 10 of us who are out there so far, swell it up to 50. Anyway, the old wobs infected Woody with their humor, with their cynicism, with their anger, but in particular with the songs that they sang out of their little red songbook to fan the flames of discontent. And of all the songs in that songbook, the ones that would have influenced Woody the most probably would have been written by this guy, Joe Hill. Swedish-born immigrant to the United States who became a martyr to the cause of American labor with his execution in the state of Utah in 1915 on a very dubious murder charge. Um, a lot of people think that the real reason that, that uh, Joe Hill was executed was uh, for, for writing the great anthem to American labor, the first half of the 20th century, The Preacher and the Slave. Um, and a very influential song on Woody Guthrie. Uh, it's based on um, uh, uh, in the sweet by and by, where we'll meet on that beautiful shore, and of course, the way that the way that Joe Hill uh, turns it into is, you may know, we will eat by and by in that glorious land up in the sky. Work and pray and live on hay. You'll get pie in the sky when you die. You know, that, those are the sentiments of it, right? Well, the year before his execution, Joe Hill wrote a pamphlet, no matter how good, is never read more than once, but a song is learned by heart and it's repeated over and over. So that's kind of the first lesson that he taught Woody Guthrie from Beyond the Grave. The second is this, he said, take a few cold common sense facts, put them into a song, and dress them up in a coat of humor to take the dryness off of them. And I think uh, that that's something that he, he demonstrated in, in The Preacher and the Slave, and it's also something he taught Woody Guthrie. Well, Woody got a job hosting um, a, 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 a radio program on a progressive station in Los Angeles, although that year is wrong. It couldn't have been any earlier than 1937. But as I said, he also began um, visiting the migrant camps um, increasingly from 1938 onwards. And some of these were the cosmetic show places set up by the government, the Farm Security Administration. These were great places to be. But there weren't enough of them to cope with the magnitude of the Dust Bowl crisis. So the majority of the camps that Woody Guthrie was visiting were slums. They called them Hoovervilles, named after uh, Herbert Hoover, who, on whose watch the, the Depression was uh, ushered in. And these would be packed with families, whole families of, say, eight or ten, getting by at three dollars a week between them, picking cotton in the San Joaquin Valley. Now, back east, 
President Roosevelt had actually declared, if I went to work in a factory, the first thing I'd do would be to join a union. Which sounded pretty good coming from the Oval Office. I don't think any president had gone so far to endorse the rights of labor to organize. But the reality for the radical migrants attempting to organize in the fields in California, they were crushed time and again. Because the bosses, the fruit crop growers, they hated unions. No, I take it back. They loved unions if they were unions of bosses. They organized themselves into uh, the associated farmers. You know, it's okay for the bosses to have unions. Uh, chambers of Commerce, Manufacturers Association. Associations, uh, associated farmers, but if you are a worker organizing into a union, then you are a communist. And if the associated farmers' aim is to stamp out all un-American activity among farm labor, then that's organizing a union. Here's some of the associated farmers of Kern County, California, engaged in the un-American activity of their choice: book burning. They're burning a copy of John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath as soon as it's published in 1939 because they don't come out so good in that book, right? So that's like extreme lit crit, right? And when they weren't book burning, they were hiring local goons and thugs and giving them uh, axe handles, baseball bats, sawn-off shotguns, knuckle dusters, billy clubs, and a little tin badge that said deputy to make them feel important. And then they would uh, send them out to bust up picket lines, to scatter union meetings, to burn down entire migrant camps, to assassinate union organizers. All of this with the grateful thanks of the LAPD and the LA Times and this anti-migrant block. So Woody took a look at that situation and wrote about it, drawing partly on the Grapes of Wrath. You may remember Preacher Casey in the Grapes of Wrath, ex-preacher who becomes a union organizer and is consequently murdered by the vigilantes in the hire of the associated farmers. Have you seen that vigilante man? Have you seen the vigilante man? Have you seen the vigilante man? I've been hearing his name all over the land. Lonely nights down in the engine house Sleeping just as still as a mouse Man come along, chases us out in the rain Was that the vigilante man? I have traveled round from town to town Traveled around from town to town And they heard us round just like a wild herd of cattle Was that vigilante man Preacher Casey was just a working man he said, unite all of you working men. They killed him in the river. Some strange man was that the vigilante man.
tell me why does that vigilante man mm, why does the vigilante man carry a sort of shotgun in his hand would he shoot his brother and his sister down Have you seen that vigilante man? Have you seen the vigilante man? Have you seen the vigilante man? I've been hearing his name all over the land. Well, there's something really interesting happening now. Woody is beginning to listen to the radio. Really critically, all the migrants are gathered around the one radio in the migrant camp, and they're listening to the Carter family singing the, you know, the, the latest hit of that year, this, uh, this World Is Not My Home, you know, another song, another Baptist hymn, country hit, pretty much about pie in the sky, you know, you can just keep walking on towards heaven, maybe... Next time, try the train, get the, get the, take the celestial railroad to heaven or something like that. And um, he, uh, now he adored groups like the Carter family, but he didn't like the, the sentiments of these songs that are trying to divert your attention away from the realities of what's happening on the ground. And it seems to him that's what the popular music industry is, is dedicated to doing. Now, I think he overstates the case because you had... You had some great songs in the Depression, like uh, Once I built a railroad, I made it run Made it race against time Once I built a railroad, now it's done Brother, can you spare a dime? You know, you know that, that's, that is Yip Harburg and Jay Gorney's that's the classic anthem of the Depression. And I think it manages to capture the helplessness and the despair of the era very well. But my point is, Woody hated songs that, that were trying to stoke up helplessness and despair. What he is interested in corralling is anger. Anger that will lead to some kind of political rebellion, uh, economic revolution, the overthrow of American capitalism. He is dedicated to nothing less than that. Um, at this point. And, uh, you know, begging for a dime, the capitalists weren't begging for anything, they were taking it. Right? So this is when he begins to get interested in the old outlaw ballads that his mother used to sing to him in Oklahoma when he was growing up. The kind of ballads that take a, a highwayman and turn him into a Robin Hood figure robbing from the rich and, and giving to the poor. Uh, this is about the time he's jotting into his notebook things like, I love a good man outside the law as much as I hate a bad man inside the law. Right. He starts writing his own outlaw ballads about now. Uh, sometimes he chooses people as subjects who don't deserve the honor. For instance, this guy, a local petty thief, thug from Oklahoma, a uh, bank robber, general all-around scumbag named Charles Arthur Floyd, pretty boy Floyd. There's no evidence in the historical record that this guy had any kind of a social conscience whatsoever. Doesn't matter. He becomes a Robin Hood figure who, who uh, in Woody's ballad, who proclaims, uh, you know, some will rob you with a six gun and some with a fountain pen, 
right? Uh, there's other ballads he turns to, uh, other kind of Robin Hood figures like the English highwayman Dick Turpin, um, redistributing all of the wealth that, that, that he acquires on the highway. But I think his, one of his greatest outlaw ballads um, is a song uh, where, in, in which he chooses as the subject somebody who is pretty well known, and he turns this person into a plain old working man and perhaps the world's first socialist. As he puts into the mouth of a character in his autobiographical novel, Bound for Glory, he's got these, these um, hobos sitting around a campfire or something. And one guy says to everybody else, he says, I'll tell you one thing, Jesus Christ was sitting right here right now, he'd say this very same damn thing. He'd tell you we all just mortally gotta work together, build things together, fix up old things together, clean out old filth together, and own things together. And sure, they'll call it some bad ism, but Jesus don't care if you call it socialism or communism or just me and you. And I think it's significant that he makes his ballad of Jesus Christ, the connection uh, with, the, with the holy outlaw even stronger, because he bases the tune and the format 100% on the old American outlaw ballad, Jesse James. Jesus Christ was a man who traveled through the land. He was a hard-working man and brave. He said unto the rich, share your goods out with the poor. So they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. Jesus was a man and a carpenter by hand with followers true and brave. But that dirty little coward called Judas Iscariot, he laid Jesus Christ in his grave. He went up to the preacher, and he went up to the sheriff, and he told them all the same. He told them that the poor would one day win the world, that's why they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. But the people of the land, they took Jesus by the hand And they followed him far and wide He said, I come not to bring peace, no, I come to bring a sword So they killed Jesus Christ on the sly Jesus was a man and a carpenter by hand With followers true and brave but that dirty little coward that they called Judas is carrying. He laid Jesus Christ in his grave. Now the people held their breath when they learned about his death. Everybody wondered why. It was the landlords and the lawyers and the soldiers that they hired that nailed Jesus Christ in the sky. Now this song was written down in New York City of rich man and preacher and slave. And if Jesus preached today like he preached in Galilee, they would lay Jesus Christ in his grave. Jesus was a man and a carpenter by hand with followers true and brave. But that dirty little coward that they called Judas Iscariot 
He laid Jesus Christ in his grave. Now if the love of the poor should one day turn to hate, and if the patience of the workers fades away, it will be better for you rich if you had never been born. You have laid Jesus Christ in his grave. Jesus was a man and a carpenter by hand with followers true and brave. But that dirty little coward that they called Judas Iscariot, he laid Jesus Christ, laid Jesus Christ, laid Jesus Christ in his grave. Thank you. Well, that song was indeed written in 1940, and it was the end of an era, just about the end of this presentation, too. And the reason it was the end of an era is because the previous year, President Roosevelt announced that the New Deal was officially being wound up so that the government's resources could be redirected to concentrate on increasingly, shall we say, global issues. So it's the bitter cold... Uh, New Year of 1940, Woody Guthrie has decided to make New York his home. He's hitchhiking north and east out of Texas. And it seems that on every roadhouse jukebox, on every car radio, he's hearing what seems to be the latest self-righteous, patriotic, complacent offering from Tin Pan Alley. This is the hit of the year, 1939-40. Kate Smith singing Irving Berlin's God Bless America. Now, there's two ways to read that song. One, at least two ways. One way, this is the fervent and fearful expression of hope from a Russian Jewish immigrant to the United States, Irving Berlin, who is nervously watching the rise of fascism in Europe and praying to God that it won't happen over here. That's one way of reading it. That's a charitable way of reading it. Woody Guthrie did not have that charity. He hated this song. As far as he was concerned, it was yet another blithe assurance from the industry that there could possibly be an unearthly solution to earthly problems. He hated this song so much that he sat down and wrote a song in response to it, and it became his most popular. And nearly 30 years later, after he'd finally died of the Huntington's disease that he inherited from his mother and which had increasingly silenced him throughout the 50s and the early 60s, his son Arlo remembered the irony of that particular song's history. He said, I remember him coming home from the hospital and taking me out to the backyard, just him and me, and him teaching me the last three verses to this land is your land, because he thinks that if I don't learn them, no one will remember them. Now, he can barely strum the guitar at this point, and his friends think he's a drunk or crazy, and they stick him in a puke green room in a mental hospital. And then, when he can't write or talk or do anything at all anymore, he hits it big. All of a sudden, everyone's singing his songs. Kids are singing, this land is your land in school. People are talking about making it the national anthem. Bob Dylan and all those others are copying him, and he can't react to it. Well, This Land is Your Land began life with the title God Blessed America. If you see the original manuscript, it's God Blessed America, and it contains a couple of killer anti-capitalist verses that I don't remember singing in school. <laughs> right? And a lot of people never heard them until uh, January of 2009 when Bruce Springsteen and Pete Seeger sang it at Barack Obama's inaugural concert right in this fair town. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to leave, and then the next day, of course, the newspapers 
Would, would say, did you know Woody wrote that? You know, this land is your land as Woody wrote it. Yep, that's how he wrote it. So I'm going to leave you now with a version that I think pretty well charts the progression of this song from the angry and bitter satire that it originally was to the unofficial national anthem that it eventually became. Well, I walked that ribbon of highway, saw above me the endless skyway, saw below me the golden valley, and they're all singing, God bless America for me. I roamed and I rambled, followed my own footsteps through the sparkling sands of her diamond deserts. And all around me, that voice kept singing, God bless America for me. The sun came shining while I was strolling through wheat fields waving and the dust clouds rolling as the fog was lifting. That old voice kept singing, God bless America for me. There was a big high wall there and it tried to stop me. Had a painted sign there saying private property. And on the other side, didn't say nothing except God bless America for me. And down in your city, in the shadow of the steeple, by the relief office, I saw my people. And as they stood hungry, I stood there wondering about God bless America for me. Nobody living can ever stop me as I go walking that freedom highway. Nobody living can ever make me turn back cause this land was made for you and me. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the New York Island, and from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. Over to you. <laughs> a few minutes for questions and answers. I want to leave enough time for people to have a chance to have their books signed if you'd like to buy a copy or selling them here. 
but um, we have a few minutes for Q&A, so I'll let you follow and stuff. Yes. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, he had, well, from his first marriage, um, there were three children, all of whom died tragically. The first two daughters died of Huntington's disease, and the, and the, the son was killed in a car crash. Second marriage, uh, which produced Arlo, also produced Nora, who runs the Woody Guthrie archives, um, produced Jody, who's out in California as a guitarist. But the first daughter was um, Kathy Ann, who, in, who died in 1947. Uh, uh, in a house fire, a uh, little girl about th about two and a half years old. Uh, well, they did from the first marriage. But that was all. That was all so far, and now it seems that you know if you, if you, if it doesn't hit you in in sort of early middle age, it probably won't hit you. And so, so the children from his second marriage seem seem to be okay. He did have a daughter from from a brief third marriage, and she too was killed in a in a car crash as a teenager. So, pretty tragic. Uh, Family. Uh, yeah. Wow, they're all coming up. Yes, I see. Sure, thank you. Um, the songs that you sang were pretty much the canonical versions that I recognized, except the first one, Pastures of Plenty. You changed yeah. some of the notes, especially in the fourth line. Um, some of the notes or some of the. The, the, the notes, the, the music. Oh yeah, well was I. That, was that you or was oh yeah, that's me. Version? That's me. I mean, okay. uh, you know, what, yeah, Woody, Woody, Woody rarely, Woody wasn't that careful a musician. Anyway, he didn't even care if he was in tune half the time. Didn't care what string he hit, <laughs> and often, um, and he recorded uh, two or three versions of Pastures of Plenty. Some of them are in minor, some of them are in major. I just maintain there's no point in trying to sound like Woody Guthrie. That would be committing suicide. I mean, he sounded awful, you know. <laughs> so I think what's a good thing about his songs is that they they lend themselves to so many interpretations. And this is me wishing I actually sounded like Ry Cooter more than. Anything else? But yeah, so. Oh, yes, you had your hand up. Yes, ma'am. Um, you mentioned Joe Hill. You talk about Joe Hill in your book? Um, yeah, I talk, I talk a little bit about, about the influence of the Wobblies and, and Joe Hill on Woody, but I mean, I don't, I don't really, uh, you know, sort of digress into a history of, of Joe Hill. There are some good biographies of Joe Hill out there. Um, funny thing about Joe Hill, like, um, you know, a lot of. Um, a, a lot of people remember the famous telegram that he sent to his friends in the Wobblies the night before he died, which was, you know, a famous line in American history. It says, don't mourn for me, organize, you know. A lot of people aren't aware that also in the same telegram he said, um, can you do me a favor? When this is all over, can you promise you'll get my body across the state line? Because I don't want to be caught dead in Utah. <laughs> <laughs> which is that. <laughs> yeah. Yes? I just wonder, did he ask for Henry Wallace? Mm-hmm. And I talk quite a lot about that in the book. A lot about, yeah, he wrote a lot of songs for Wallace, some really, truly dreadful songs like Baking for Wallace and, <laughs> and, and stuff like that. And then when, and there's an interesting um, part that because he and Pete Seeger, you know, were all brought in by Alan Lomax to, Alan Lomax was sort of um, hired by Wallace to conduct the musical side of the campaign. And then after Wallace came in a pitiful third behind Strom Thurmond and the Dixiecrats, you know, um, Woody s s um, fires off this incredibly unjust, unfair, angry letter pointing a finger at everyone in people's songs about why it was their fault that, um, that Wallace lost, <laughs> you know. Um, so, yeah, he was very much involved, very much involved in that. Yes? I, I had picked up an album a while back, and I want to say it was Braxton Bragg mm -hmm. who 
Billy Bragg. Braxton Bragg was the Civil War general, wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Billy Bragg, the English, yeah. yeah. What is, was that, someone had told me that that was a, a part of a, a trove of Yes, yes, songs? yes. Oh, yeah, well, they're not lost. They're, they're, they're safely ensconced in the Woody Guthrie archives, uh, run by Woody's daughter, Nora, who was, of course, a great help to me in writing this book because I had to get permission to quote every one of her daddy's words, and I had to pay for them. Um, <laughs> She, quite rightly, she, um, in fact, 40% of the royalties of this book are going to the Woody Guthrie Foundation, which Nora, which Nora runs. Yes, she, there are about 3,000 of Woody's songs in the, um, in the Woody Guthrie archives. We, we only know a fraction of the songs. Only a fraction were recorded. Only a fraction were published in, 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 in songbooks. And what Nora's project has been since about the 1990s is to bring contemporary songwriters and musicians into the archives and put some of her dad's unpublished lyrics to music. So they write, the, it's in a sense, it's a collaboration with Woody from Beyond the Grave. They write the music, Woody's written the words. And so the first, uh, among the first that, that when, actually the very first was probably Country Joe McDonald, who did one song back in the, in the, um, in the, uh, the 70s. Uh, but really the big project began when Nora invited uh, Billy Bragg, the English radical songwriter, in to record ended up two albums called Mermaid Avenue, Volume 1 and 2. Uh, he did it with the band Wilco. And, um, and they, they, they've been pretty popular. She's brought in Jonathan Brooke, great singer-songwriter to do some of Woody's love songs. Apparently right now she's just finished producing um, Jay Farrar of Sun Volt. Um, doing an another album of Woody's songs. So this is a project she has, as she says, I want to drag Woody out of the Dust Bowl. And also she wants to, to match his words to more contemporary sounds. So she's not all that interested in, in folk singers going in there. She's bringing in rap artists. She's bringing in, you know, really heavy metal, electric kind of people, funk and soul bands. That's, that's, that's the route she's going. So we'll, we're going to hear some interesting musical hybrids coming out of the Woody Guthrie archives, I think. I, I Ooh, okay. I'm hoping that you all will stay and continue <laughs> to ask questions, continue the conversation. Will will be here signing. And um, I just want to thank him again for being here. It's been a great pleasure to hear Woody Guthrie come alive um, in sound and on, on the, the projector here. This is something that um, is so important to us. There's no reason to have a National Portrait Gallery if the lives of the individuals that we celebrate aren't still relevant today. And I think we've heard from some of the questions and from the talk just how relevant Woody Guthrie's legacy is today. And, and what kind of an America would we have if there weren't people like Woody Guthrie that were willing to speak up or sing um, and add so much to the rich uh, tapestry of our nation's history. So thank you, Will, for being here. Thank you. Thank you.